It is Easter Sunday. He is risen. They said he is risen indeed. Let's sing about it. I know that my Redeemer lives. Let's go.
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. All right, church family. Well, how awesome for Liam to be able to announce the testimony of the risen king. Well, we have this tradition at ABF that's such a fun part of our church. We didn't want our online folks to miss out on it. So here's the thing I'd love to see you do. I'd love for you, if you have the ability, if you're in a space where you can do it, to stand up with us. And on the count of three, we're gonna all shout, he is risen and actually pre be pretty excited about that. And uh, we're gonna throw a party here. And so would love to have you uh, join in. So are you guys ready for this? All right, on the count of three, and there's no, no double take on this. It's a one shot wonder. So here we go. One, two, three. He's, He's risen! risen! Oh, church, this is my testimony. Let's sing it. I saw Satan fall like lightning. I saw darkness run for cover. Yeah. But the miracle that I just can't get over, my name is registered in heaven. I believe in signs and wonders. Resurrection power Still the miracle that I just can't get over My name is registered in heaven Yeah, my praise belongs to you forever This is my testimony from dead to life God's grace rewrote my story Jesus Christ, the righteous, I'm justified. This is my testimony. This is my testimony. 
I'm not dead, you're not done Greater things are still to come Oh, I believe If I'm not dead, you're not done Greater things are still to come Oh, I believe If I'm not dead, you're not done Greater things are still to come Wasn't that awesome? Thank you so much, worship team, as we testify of the risen Lord. Yes, Resurrection Sunday. This is what we're celebrating. And so we're so glad you've joined us again online here at ABF. We want to keep you always plugged in. And let me tell you about some of the things that are happening around this place. I realize for some of you, you may be kind of tuning in for the first time. So let me give you a rundown of what ABF is really like. First of all, we believe in praying. And so if you'd text us your prayer request at 97,097,000, we wanna pray for you all the time. Just text us and we will pray. Also, there's so many ways to get connected here. We have life groups. You say, what's a life group? That's a smaller group of people who get together once or twice a month to study God's word, to share life together. Some share meals together. It's an awesome time. And we have those both online and meeting in person. Then there's all kinds of things for men and women. Men have Bible studies on Tuesday morning. Women have several options during the week. Again, together and online. But what you want to know about both of those ministries, they have some events coming up. The men have a game night coming up on April 23rd. And of course, the annual women's tea, the garden tea on May 1st. Then you say, but I got kids. What's going on for kids? Oh, let me tell you. Kids Blast is so much fun. Every Sunday, the kids gather from birth and infants all the way through fifth grade. But here's something you've got to get on your calendar right now. Camp ABF, June 21st to 25th, and there's two things you got to know. A, we need some volunteers, so you'll want to register right away. And you say, how do I register my kid? Go on the website. There's an amazing amount of fun that we're going to have that week. We'll clue you in in the days ahead, but you're going to want to register now because we have a limited number of people 
who can attend. And so we don't want your kids to miss out. Then you say, what about the older kids? Well, we got junior high and high school. In fact, you know probably that high school meets on Wednesday nights, junior high meets on Thursday nights. And so you'll want to plug your kiddos into one of those two ministries as well. All of this information, by the way, is on our website. Just go to our website and you can get all the information you want on all the things I've just talked about. And then for those of you who are regulars here with us at ABF Online, we wanna again thank you for your generosity, for your giving, the way you so sacrificially look out for the needs both here, across the street, and around the world. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. And so again, you can give multiple ways, online, mail the check, etc. We wanna just celebrate now as we open God's word. Would you welcome with me Pastor Scott Cagle as he preaches this morning? All right, well, thank you, Pastor John. And thank you, worship team. Uh, so refreshing to spend some time worshiping, uh, going into Easter weekend. Well, before I dive in today's uh, text, I did want to highlight something that I know you guys have been anxious to hear back about. Some of you may have already uh, seen online that Pastor Josh and Lindsay gave birth to a healthy baby girl on Wednesday of this week. Praise the Lord. And uh, fun details. Uh, first, uh, the Moms always want to know this stuff. She was seven pounds, four ounces, 20 and a half inches long, and her name is Hallelujah Julianne. Hallelujah, Hallelujah Julianne. So fun because the, the name Hallelujah actually means praise God. And so every time someone says her name, whether they realize it or not, they're going to be praising God. I was thinking about that, what that challenge would be in the formative years. Uh, praise God, now get over here right now. Praise God, now go clean your room. Praise God, don't you dare think about doing that. Uh, should have some fun with that name uh, later on in life, but in all seriousness, they do plan to abbreviate that to Holly, and so we're so excited for Josh and Lindsay in celebrating uh, the birth of their healthy baby girl. Well, I'm looking forward to today, the privilege of teaching again through God's word and the, really the account that we're giving today, the account is the most significant event in the history of the world. And you're like, pastor, that's a, that's a pretty bold statement to make. And that event that we're pointing at, as you know, if you're here for Easter, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the foundation of our faith, and it's the, really what everything hinges on. It's not just a, a feature of the Christian faith, but it's the, really, it's the main event. In fact, I like how the Apostle Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 5, 17. He says this, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Everything hinges on this single event, Jesus Christ rising from the dead on the third day, providing victory over sin and death for all who believe. It's the reason why we celebrate. It's the reason why we throw confetti, why we make a, such a big deal about Easter every single year. Well, I'm excited to dive into the text here, John chapter 20. Let me just pray before we do that. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this chance to gather and celebrate a risen Lord 
If that was not the case, we'd have a very different tone in our gathering right now. We're not celebrating that somebody that had good ideas and once was a wise sage, but instead a risen Lord that's now reigning and ruling over all. We're thankful for that. We're grateful for that. Now we ask that in this text that you'd speak to us, that you'd meet us exactly where we're at as only you can do in the study of your word. We invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, I'd love for you to pull out your Bibles. If you're newer here, we've just been working our way through the entire book of John. John was a really close friend and disciple of Jesus, and this is his account of the life of Jesus. I'm going to be reading from John chapter 20, and we're studying from the ESV version, which I've been told stands for the extra spiritual version of God's word. Just kidding, but we're starting in verse one here, chapter 20. It says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple and the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out from the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And in stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he said, and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. We'll stop there for a little bit of explanation. Basically, it starts off with the very first verse explaining that this took place on the first day of the week. If you remember from our account in Genesis, basically God, when he was walking through the creation story, established what the first week would be, the first day all the way through the seventh day, the seventh day being a day of rest. What's happened since then, rather than numbering days by one, day one, day two, day three, and so forth, the Romans have decided to rename the days. You might not realize the origin of our names of our days, but basically they're connecting the days of the week to the different gods of the Romans. Sunday was the sun god. Monday was the moon god. Tuesday was the god of war by the name of two. Wednesday was the god named Woden. Thursday was the god you might be familiar with. His name was Thor. Friday was the god by the name, actually a goddess by the name of Frigga, who was the goddess of love. Saturday was the god of Saturn, basically the idea of a fun and celebration god. All of these were established, but somewhere in the early first century, Believers in Jesus started coming together to worship on the first day of the week, and they renamed it rather than Sunday. They started calling it the Lord's Day. Now, why do you think it was called the Lord's Day? It's because of this. This is the origin story 
of why we worship on Sunday, why we come together every uh, single Sunday of the year to celebrate a risen Lord. The story, if you're paying attention from last week, if you had a chance to hear the message, basically the timeline that's taken place is it went from Friday afternoon, late afternoon, where Jesus breathed his last breath and was buried in a tomb, to now it's Sunday morning. Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, if you will. Mary Magdalene, we're told here, rushes to the tomb with the intention. I imagine she didn't sleep well the night before, so she rushes first thing with the intention to make sure Jesus was given a proper burial. In that day and age, part of a proper burial was to make sure that he was wrapped appropriately and then covered with spices to make sure not to stop the body from decaying, but in fact, to actually take away the unpleasant smell of decomposing flesh. So she's showing up with that intention. And we see there that upon arrival, she finds that the body is no longer where it had been placed. Now you're wondering, who is this Mary Magdalene? We learned first about her in Luke chapter eight, verse two, that she was a woman that was possessed Describes as having seven demons inside of her that Jesus set free. She was released from the possession of the spiritual darkness in her life. And so pretty powerful testimony of a changed life. So now she's wanting to do everything possible to honor Jesus. So she shows up there wanting to make sure that he gets an appropriate burial. But upon arrival, she's convinced somebody must have taken him. It's always interesting to me in these different accounts that are found in the different gospel messages that in those that they're, they're always surprised by the idea. She doesn't even consider the possibility that Jesus has raised, been raised from the dead. To me, when I read Jesus's interactions with the disciples on a number of occasions, he was crystal clear that he would die and be buried and rise again on the third day, but they somehow miss that reality. How do we know that they miss that reality? The way we know, I like Andy Stanley points it out, that they're on the Sunday morning at the tomb site. There's nobody doing a countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. There's no, none of that happening, but instead just this woman showing up with tears in her eyes. Think about that for a moment. So often if they would have paid attention to Jesus' words and they would have studied God's word and understood the prophecy that was uh, behind all of this, they would have been better equipped to deal with the miserable days that they've just been through. But instead, verse nine tells us, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. In this account, we're told John is speaking about it and he always refers to himself as the other disciple or the more often he actually three different times, this is the third time that he refers to himself as the one, the, the one whom Jesus loved. Third time in the book that he refers to himself as that, kind of a, a cool picture that he had received such love. But part of that, the demonstration or display of that love in his life is every account that you see of Peter after Jesus is after he denies Jesus three times after that whole situation there's no description of Peter that doesn't include John 
John had learned something about love and now he's demonstrating it by being present there with Peter in this difficult time. He had most likely even heard him deny Jesus there in the courtyard of the high priest. So we see that John sees his primary identity as one who is loved. He's at the stage in his life that any of the other titles that he might have gone by before really are no longer a big deal. Kind of a a sign of maturity, one might say, when you start to really, the only thing that matters in your life is whether or not you're loved by Jesus. And if you've embraced Jesus as Savior, you're just as loved as John was and is. In this, though, we know that he's not fully mature, still some signs of some immaturity. Do you see it there in the text? Notice a number of times he makes reference of his ability to outrun Peter getting there. Verse four, both of them are running together. So they're running side to side. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Why does he need to highlight that? In fact, a couple verses later, he rubs it in further. Then Simon Peter came following him, making sure everybody knows that he's the first one to arrive at the empty tomb. Okay, John, we get it. You're faster than Peter. Well, we see what they both find upon arrival is what? They find the linen clothes. They find the tomb with just the the leftover linen clothes there lying where Jesus had laid. Kind of a a fascinating thing to try to make sense out of. And then it it says something uh, that was really interesting in verse seven. Do you see it there? It says, in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. It's really interesting to me why that would be included in there. My dad shared with me this week kind of an interesting insight by one biblical scholar He explained that in that day and age, one of the clues that a servant would watch for during mealtimes to understand when it was time to clean up after the meal is what was happening with the face cloth. If the the master was finished with his face with the meal, he would wad up the face cloth and throw it on top of the meal that he had completed. That was their clue to start cleaning up. But if the master of the house actually folded the cloth and placed it by or by by the food that he was eating, that was a sign that he was still planning to come back. Kind of cool if you think about that as they're trying to watch what transpired there and make sense that this was, in fact, a beautiful clue that he's coming back. A beautiful reminder that he wasn't gone, that he would return. That's what he left them as a signal behind. Either way, whether that was the intent or not, these grave clothes are a great argument against what so many people would suggest. Some would suggest that that Jesus must have been taken by robbers and relocated. But really, if you think about that case or that argument, how often could you imagine that robbers trying to steal a body would fully uncover the person that's wrapped up from head to toe, leaving a completely broken and bruised and damaged smelly body to steal the body without the grave clothes, that wouldn't make sense. And then for them to take time to carefully fold and place the, the linen cloth over his face, I don't think so. Either way, we're told that upon viewing this, it says they saw and they believed. 
I imagine now they're starting to connect the dots, starting to make sense out of this. Verse 11 will continue with a glimpse of the very first eyewitness. But Mary Magdalene, who we've already been talking about, stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had laid, lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Pretty powerful description of there of what transpires. Basically, apparently after Mary Magdalene went and told John and Peter about the grave being empty, she must have gone and revisited to see what was happening, try to connect some dots herself. And upon arrival, we're told that she's weeping. The Greek word used there is a word that describes loud, uncontrollable wailing. So she's really bent out of shape. These last couple of days have really taken her the toll on her. Imagine seeing her savior executed on a cruel cross. But it's interesting that these traumatic events didn't, it caused her to be blinded to the very presence of Jesus. It's interesting that they, she's asked by angels why she's crying, that she hadn't connected the dots, that something big was going on here. Something huge. First off, I want to highlight how cool it must be to have interactions with angels. I find it interesting in scripture that the Bible mentions angels 300 different times. 58 out of 66 books of the Bible refer to angels. And they have one intent. They're designed to be messengers, being a messenger for God. But I find it interesting in this interaction, Jesus takes away their job because he chooses to be the one to reveal himself to her rather than waiting for their announcement. It's pretty cool to think about that. Think about also what a big deal it is that Jesus chooses out of all of the possible candidates for his revelation, for him introducing himself after coming back from the dead, he chooses a humble woman, a humble woman. In that day, it's a, it's a real testimony. It's a real shattering of the gender hierarchy of that time and day. In fact, a woman couldn't even testify in court. So if you're making up this story and trying to say who he showed himself to, you probably wouldn't list a, a woman first in your description. It's a great for reminder for us that anybody that claims that Christianity is negative towards women, they need to examine the gospel accounts we notice there that at first upon seeing him, she didn't recognize him. She, what does it say? 
She thought he was the gardener at first. On that, it's interesting for us in the middle of our pain so often for us to be so caught up in our suffering that we miss Jesus's presence in the middle of it. There's something we can learn there from Mary. Here in this though, why she wouldn't recognize Jesus, some make the argument that this is his resurrected body and not immediately to be recognized by people. This is version 2.0, that there's some pretty significant differences. It's similar, but also different. We're about to see in this account that this body is no longer bound or subject to the normal laws of nature like our body is. It's pretty cool if you think about this, if this is any kind of a glimpse of what's to come for those of us who have embraced Jesus Christ, that this is maybe what our resurrected body looks like. My son is kind of goofy, always messing around. He asked, always asked me these would you rather questions. One time I remember not that long ago, he was asking me the question. He said, you know, dad, would you rather be able to fly or would you rather be able to teleport to a new location? That's a tough call. I was thinking about that. I don't, I'm like, I don't know which I would choose. Either, either of those are pretty cool. But if you think about it, in the resurrected body of Jesus, We see really both. First, you see him arriving, we're about to see in verses to come, arriving in the center of a room where the doors are completely locked. And then when we see his ascension to heaven, him rising up to heaven, what if in our resurrected body, we get the bonus package? Teleport and fly, sign me up. It sounds pretty awesome. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 tells us, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's the very first to experience that. Then a couple verses later, in verse 23, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. In other words, in phone language, he was eligible for an upgrade first, but we're not that far behind in line. Pretty to awesome sometimes to consider what our resurrected bodies will be like. Now back to our story there, Mary, as I mentioned, thought he was a landscaper because they're in a garden and maybe because of her tear-filled eyes, but something changed when he actually said her name. That's a powerful thing. That's enough to jolt us awake and, and jolt us to where when somebody uses our name, it's powerful. Right here as we're filming this, Michael Lubin. I say that name, he uh, he glanced up, he had a smile on his face. There's something about a name being said that evokes a response. And in this instance, that's what it took to jolt her to recognize, whoa, this is Jesus. He calls her by name. And then he has to explain, he has to tell her, don't cling to me. Not saying don't touch me. I imagine immediately she grabs a hold of him and does not want to let go a beautiful picture of her being reunited with her Lord. Imagine in this that she's the huge privilege that she's given, first off being the first to be the eyewitness, then being the one that's sent as a messenger to go and tell others that he's alive, that he's risen. Man, I think about that, the passion and excitement as she's rushing to tell the disciples the amazing news, oh, that we could learn from that as his current children, if we rush with that same degree of passion to share the amazing news. The next now is the encounter with Jesus with the disciples in that same day. Take a look at verse 19. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We'll give some explanation, pretty powerful experience this. As I mentioned, this was the first gathering. Really, you could make the argument that this being the first gathering on Sunday was the very first church service worshiping Jesus Christ. And as upon their arrival, it may have started with fear. They're nervous about being arrested and what might happen to them. That's all relieved. The only disciple that is missing from this scene is Thomas. Kind of a sad display if you think about it. Isn't that always how it works? The one Sunday that you didn't want to miss, the one that they always say, oh, that was such a great message. That was such a great whatever aspect of it. You should have been there. That's the one that Thomas misses. Kind of a, a sad lesson for us to learn the importance that isolating during times of trials are the wor- is the worst possible thing you can do. That's the choice that Thomas has made here. But we're told that with the doors locked as they're hiding from the Jewish leaders, that Jesus showed up in their presence. Now, we don't know exactly how this transpired. There's some debate whether he just, like I had said, teleported in, whether he walked through a wall. Either way, any of the possibilities, in my opinion, are all absolutely cool. Upon arrival, though, he brings a much needed message. What does he say to them? Peace be with you. Now, if you're a part of an interaction in that day and time, that was kind of a standard greeting. That was just the way that you'd wish someone over well, uh, an overall well-being of, their, uh, of kind of their life, kind of wishing them the best, kind of a, a standard invite. But you got to believe that when Jesus says these things, says this idea of peace to a, a group of men that had abandoned him and walked away from him in his time of need, man, that's a, a big deal peace be with you? Oh man, I will take it. It was a lot happening, not just relationally, but peace, not just with them, but their relationship with God. Think about different times you've had a severed relationship with someone you care about, someone that you love, and the tension is in the room. You're always asking the person, is everything okay? And what do they always say? What's the term that the expression they always use? Oh, I'm fine. Now in your heart of hearts, you've heard them say they're fine, but you know that they're not doing fine. Maybe your spouse has said that and you're like, I don't, I don't believe you. This is the same idea here. You see, there's a sever between their relationship with God. That's really the gospel message. Because of our sin, our choice to go our own direction, there is separation with God and there's coming judgment for all of us that are operating in our sin. But Jesus, and that's the amazing news that Jesus is coming into that room with is that he's ushering in peace, or at least the potential for peace for those who believe. It says that they are pretty excited about that. In fact, it says upon arrival, they were told that they were glad. 
Now, to me, that's kind of a, a funny word because sometimes translation words really don't capture what the tone must have been in that room as they're forgiven by Jesus, as they're restored in their relationship with God because of his finished work on the cross. I probably think that glad doesn't necessarily capture it. I've watched that crazy promotional video a number of times, that Easter one that was put together. And I think this clip of Josh and Chris connecting with each other is probably a little better picture of maybe what transpired when they all found out it was Jesus. Take a look. In that, either way, maybe that's a goofy description, but in that, it's a beautiful picture of what it must have been like, the excitement, the enthusiasm to be reconnected. And it's interesting that even in that very first encounter, the first thing that Jesus is about is giving them their mission. He's giving them the great commission. He's calling them to be ambassadors, to go out and tell people the message. So He says, so I am sending you, sending you the message to humanity, the important life-changing, life-altering, eternity-redirecting message that you can have peace with God because of Jesus's finished work on the cross. That's the message that he wants to make sure gets out. Then he explains to them basically what sounds at first like permission to forgive people. What does this actually mean, this description? Well, upon first reading, let's start first by understanding what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the disciples are now the go-to people for forgiveness. You have to make sure you're lumping together the whole of Scripture, not just individual pieces. Unfortunately, the Catholic Church has taken verse 23 and kind of run with it as a to validate ordained priests having authority to forgive sins that are confessed to them believing that there's a apostolic secession all the way from Peter, all the way to present popes. But 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us the opposite, that instead we have one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. So that's not the appropriate understanding. A correct inter interpretation of this is the authority that we've been entrusted to proclaim forgiveness to those who repent and believe in Jesus. And that's what the disciples go on to do that we can rightfully proclaim to anyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus that your sins have been forgiven. Or the person that's dug in their heels and resisting his grace and forgiveness, that you're still operating in your sins. That's still the same message that we proclaim today. The choice as to how we respond to Jesus determines whether or not we're operating under forgiveness or still operating in our sins. We'll continue in the text as he interacts. He wants to make sure that everybody has the chance to experience his grace. So he goes and seeks out Thomas. Take a look with me in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands, see in his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. Wow, powerful statement. Verse 26, 
Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, again, coming into their presence, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Powerful interaction here. You imagine what a bummer it is to be known throughout his history, being legendary because of your doubt. But that's doubting Thomas, unfortunately, to this day. That's often a name that we include describing somebody. We encounter somebody that you talk to and doesn't matter how much you try to encourage them or point them to the hope. You're like, man, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And they're like, no, that's just a train coming. That that person is impossible to somehow convince that better days are ahead. That person is negative regardless. You might tell them, man, you're just, you're just a negative person, man. Why can't you be more hopeful? And they're saying, I'm not negative. I'm just realistic. But really the truth is skepticism is okay as long as it motivates you to seek truth. It's fine to be a skeptic, to be somebody that, that doesn't take things lightly, that actually wrestles through finding truth themselves. But here's the problem. So many people wear the badge of skeptic but they never put in the work to seek out truth. That badge is something that they hide behind as an excuse for never act actually you know, following up, never putting in the, the homework to discover what is true. They've actually already decided in their mind and it doesn't matter how much evidence is put before them, they're not going to change. It's a, a title they hide, hide behind. But we've got to understand all, I give a lot of grace to, to, to doubting Thomas here because probably his personality coupled with his failings has triggered his disbelief. That's so often the case in our situation. It's a, uh, all that he's seen, all that he's experienced, his personality, the way he's wired. And then you add on the fact that he's blown it. So he's resisting truth until Jesus shows up. And I love the invitation that Jesus gives. First off, that same greeting, bringing peace that only Jesus can bring. And then the invitation that he says, why don't you come in and touch my scars, touch the hole in my hands, touch the hole in my side as you've request. You know that Thomas had never communicated that around Jesus, but Jesus knew what was going on in his heart. So he makes that offer. I think that's a beautiful picture of grace. Jesus reaching out to him. I love Jesus's words to him. He says this, he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. Really, that's the same invitation for every skeptic still today. The invitation to, to let go, to finally at some point, after all the evidence that's been laid out, to finally jump in. And that's exactly what Thomas does. He confesses, my Lord and my God. Jesus celebrates him, but he also celebrates future people that won't have a chance to see with their eyes. That's referring to us in the text, the people that have only heard these firsthand accounts, but have still chosen to believe. It's honestly harder to do when it's based on just an eyewitness account, but it's still possible for us to have a rock solid faith in the account that's shown in scripture. 
We'll end with these last two verses. Verse 30 and 31 explains why John wrote this account, why he wrote this book. Verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John doesn't leave us wondering his purpose statement in this and why he's writing this book. He's a, a very crystal clear that his intent is that people would see these stories, would hear these accounts, and they would respond with belief. Really, that's my same heart even here on Easter 2021 is that you'd hear these stories and you'd hear these accounts and it would either more solidify what you believe or it would introduce you to a new belief. Somebody might be listening and say, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to convert me? Are you trying to convince me to believe in Jesus? I've gone this whole other route my whole life and here's my answer. Yes, I am. Because I believe with the, to my core that this is the truth. And I believe what John says, that belief can redirect, can change and give you life if you believe in Jesus Christ being your Lord and Savior. It redirects everything. That's the whole reason he's written this book. He's given all of these details. You think about what he's captured so far as we kind of reflect on this book. Basically, eight big events in the life of Jesus. He says here he could have captured so much more, but he focuses on the eight big things in Jesus' life. You remember them if you've been in our study. The first one, amazing account of him turning water into wine at a wedding. That was a fantastic story. Then healing the official son is the second one, healing the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. The fourth one was feeding the sea of people with just a, a tiny lunch, making sure that they had plenty to eat overflowing in fact, the fifth one, walking on water, who does that? The sixth one, healing a blind man. The seventh one, it gets more spectacular, bringing Lazarus back to life after dying. And here, the eighth one, he himself, Jesus, he's the account. His death, burial, and resurrection is all written about so that you might believe and we're told what? Have life in his name. Some people are like, what do you mean have life in his name? What does that mean? Live a, a long life, live, break the hundred mark barrier. Here's the reality though. There's still plenty of people every single day dying after with plenty of vitamins in their system and, and uh, naturally filtered water. Everybody, regardless of what we do, still has the guaranteed, the death rate is still a hundred percent guaranteed to die. So what he's talking about not is, is the, about this life, but he's talking about the life to come, that we'd have life in his name. He's talking about eternal life, where we spend our eternity, whether it's separated from God because of our choice to go our own way, or whether it's restored because of the peace that Jesus Christ offers. I wanna end our service today just with that invitation I already shared what my intent in sharing this message and the intent in John and writing this account is that you would choose to believe. Even in this moment, while you're listening, while you're watching this random video of this bald guy talking about the book of John, you can make the decision to believe. 
It can just be as simple as you calling out to God right now in these moments and saying, I believe. I embrace your finished work on the cross. I'm a sinner. I'm in desperate need of rescue. I accept your rescue and what you've done for me on the cross. For the rest of us, my hope is, those that have already made that decision, that every time we go through this account, that our faith roots start to go deeper and deeper, that we're unshaken in the storm in response to this. Thank you so much for giving the time. Let me just wrap up just in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to study your word in this beautiful picture of what love looks like, what true love demonstrated is. Death for us, resurrection, bearing the penalty that was intended for us on your uh, whipped, broken back. We're so thankful for that. Now, God, I pray for the person that's hearing this, that's never made a decision, that this might be the day that they cross a line. And for the rest of us, that we would grow deep roots in our faith and love for you. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
church family. Well, again, happy Easter. He has risen. He has risen indeed. I pray that that celebration continues throughout your week. And that's the deep rooted faith that radically changes everything in your life. Hey, just an invitation. If you made a decision today, if if you had even questions about a decision today, I would be thrilled to have you reach out to me anytime to talk further about that. God bless you. Have an amazing day.